HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Jennifer Rubel, um, kind of the amalgam of this show, being defined as an intersection of food and art. Uh, you are quite a guiding force for you know both categories. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm kind of in the middle of the intersection, the place where you get run over all yeah. the time. <laughs> Step out of the way every right. once in a while. <laughs> yeah. But you have a fascinating life. It was always surrounded by those two things, and it took you a long, long time to figure out how to fuse them as one. Um, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in New York City um, on the Upper East Side. I had a really... Well, my, my family collected contemporary art really seriously, um, during my entire childhood and still do today and so I was surrounded always by artists and gallerists and critics and the art world yeah Yeah. What, what did your parents do that they decided to collect art one thing had nothing to do with the other my father was a doctor <laughs> yeah. and my mother was um in real estate she did commercial real estate lease she, she had various companies I mean, she was a very entrepreneurial woman and still is uh but they were, you know, you always think of collectors as these sort of mega wealthy world dominators who build up this collection of treasures. But there are a lot of art collectors even today with the art market as crazy as it is, who, you know, have, they had good, they made a good middle class living and they uh, collected art on, on that. But they spent a huge percentage of whatever money they made on art. Yeah. So that, that that's sort of how it began. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember which paintings you were surrounded by at a young age? 
Yeah, at that time, there were Keith Haring's in the house. There were Francesco Clemente's in the house, Julian Schnabel's. There were um, there was a Robert Gober tilted crib in the living room. Um, there were early Richard Prince pieces, early Jeff Koons pieces. Um, God, I'm trying to <laughs> mentally go around yeah. my my living room and think about my childhood living room. Could you could you interact with anything, or was it a do not touch this Jeff Koons in the corner? Well, do not touch was just a given. Yeah. It wasn't it, it wasn't oppressive because when you have when you have art in a home, it's you don't touch it, but. It's not, I mean, there was never an age where, I, I don't remember ever even daring or thinking about yeah. touching art. That was never, that never happened. Yeah. But the, the um, it, it, it's less precious and, you know, it's least precious in an artist's studio. It's a little more precious in a, um, it gets quite precious in the gallery. Then it's a little less precious inside a home. And then in a museum, it becomes this totally untouchable, oppressive. Yeah. You know, precious object. So you know, I ask that as a loaded question. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I give a lot of thought during yeah. my day to um, to the, the the tyranny of not touching objects. I mean, as somebody who creates objects that people can touch and can interact with, I know all too well why "do not touch" was put in place yeah. inside of museums because <laughs> it's really hard to make objects that can withstand. Uh, th- that can withstand interaction. Yeah. No. I mean, I just think of something as utilitarian as silverware. Right. I mean, uh, at a restaurant, too. That is something that has to, you know, be worse for wear sometimes. Yeah, and it, but what's interesting is it's made for durability, and often the objects that continue to exist from a very long time ago um, are silverware, are, are, are functional objects, more so than art objects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then would you consider food utilitarian? That's a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> we got hours. <laughs> we got hours. Yeah. I mean, this is just part one right, of a ten-part series. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, food is food is both. It's a very interesting medium because it's both absolutely utilitarian. It's a it's a requirement for human existence, and it is um, an art form. And in, in, it's an art form on its own as gastronomy, let's say. And then in, in, in the work that I do, it's a medium for visual art. Um, yeah, food is, is something that's just incredibly broad. You know, it can be everything from the most ephemeral, unimportant thing to um, something that is a carrier of tremendous meaning and cultural significance. Yeah. So do you remember Upper East Side eating, you know? We never ate on the Upper East Side. Yeah. <laughs> we, 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 my, my family always had a car that they parked on the street, and we always drove downtown. We'd go to this Thai restaurant on Baxter and Bayard that I think is still actually there called Thailand Restaurant. We'd eat there all the time. We'd go have Indian food on 6th Street. We would go, um, you know, we'd have Chinese food in Chinatown. We'd have, we would... We would go all over, and we ate a lot of ethnic food. I mean, most of the food on the Upper East Side that we ate was uh, home-cooked food that my mom would make. Yeah, and so you guys cooked at home? Uh-huh, yeah. Amount. My what, mom cooked a lot. What kind of cuisine? What ethnicity? What? Uh, I, I would say vaguely Italian. I'm not, uh, I'm not of Italian yeah. heritage. But, you know, simple food, a lot of pasta, 
Um, and then, you know, meat that's roasted or grilled and fish and, you know, just kind of, um, I don't know. There's a little bit of that, like, 70s New York uh, food. It was sort of the beginning of a certain kind of food culture in New York. And uh, I think we were in the kind of regular zone of that. So there was an awareness of ingredients. And good bread started to be made in New York. And my family would buy it. And, you know, it it was that level of food. But not a big foodie household, but a household where... Where food was a part. I mean, that word "foodie" is so horrible. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was a household where food was certainly a part of the culture of the house. Yeah. So your education ended up uh, bringing you to Harvard for yes. a BA uh-huh. in art history, right? With a food focus. No, I did not have yeah. a food focus. Um, I mean, I had. I was always tremendously interested in food, and I would, you know, my my, my parents would go to these dinners that. For for artists, and I'd wait up for them, and they'd come home, and I'd I'd I would download them. You know, I would make them tell me every detail of the food, the people, the setting, what it was, how it was organized, a lot of the kind of structural um, life of those events. I was really deeply interested in, um, but I never saw any connection between art and food yeah i just didn't i, I didn't i mean there were artists like gordon matta clark who, who who of course had food in soho at that around that time i never went to food in soho i don't know if it was before before yeah. my time but um there were artists vaguely dealing in it but at that time mostly food was either a very small part of artist practice or it was something artists engaged with and did that was not their capital A art. Yeah. So um, it was it was almost like a bridge that was like seven eighths built that didn't have that other little piece. You know? Yeah. But I, you got a foundation. You got etymology in a sense from art history and understood the progression of things. When did food get folded into that mix? You went to the Culinary Institute. I went to the Culinary yeah. and and food food was always a big part of my life that I didn't see as connected to art. Or art history. I mean, my focus in art history was more kind of um, anti-art stuff. So, like the Dadaists and Marcel Duchamp. Yeah. And, um, I was very interested in Warhol. You know, artists who were operating at the boundaries of the definition of art were always really interesting yeah. to me. And then um, after... I, I ended up going to the Culinary Institute just because I wanted to learn certain skills that... I mean, it's hard to believe now in an age where you have, like, hipster butchers, you know? (laughs) Hipster is another term, like, foodie that's appalling. But it's hard to believe that there was a time when there wasn't just some place you could go and learn how to butcher a cow. You know, it was like either you did a very hardcore internship at a very serious butcher, um, or you you had to invent something or you could go to cooking school and they you did actually learn that sort of thing there and so that's why i went i mean i i went because i just wanted to learn a little bit more about the materiality of food i wouldn't have put it that way then i was just somebody who had this need to know some stuff and that was the only way i could figure out how to know it (laughs) yeah there was there was no master plan yeah yeah thankfully there is one in retrospect Yeah, (laughs) yeah yeah Um, yeah, the hindsight. Hindsight is, is beautiful. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so, I mean, you have these 
kind of two paths, these art and food kind of mm-hmm. eventually converging. But you also took a couple other roles in food and art. Uh, you yeah. wrote about food for a while, uh, mm-hmm. Miami Herald. How did yeah. you get into that? I mean, I wrote, I wrote about, um, well, first of all, after I finished school, I went to work with my family in the hotel business in Miami. And In what facet? Uh, I, I consider those sort of the lost years. Yeah. I have to say, <laughs> but it, it's funny. I consider them the lost years, and yet the the knowledge I gained then plays a massive role in uh, some of the logistical decisions that I make now. But um, I, I I I basically dealt with the things that that touched guest experiences inside the hotel my family went into the hotel business in miami they moved to miami and and i i dealt with anything that a guest would touch or feel so i would kind of hire a lot of the front staff i would give them these scripts um of of certain kinds of approaches or or things to say i would um and then i would do these sort of special projects that were not always in the best interests of the hotels. <laughs> but, you know, I always wanted to create this engagement with people. And I now really see those special projects as the, my earliest artwork. Yeah. yeah. But one of them was I'd put these anonymous notes typed on plain white paper onto guests' pillows that were these anonymous love letters from people who were supposedly staying in the hotel and supposedly saw them and they were they could be a bit creepy or they could be you know but it was sort of like some person's fantasy of actually having been wanted and loved in the world coming true yeah but then we had these like 16 year old models staying in the hotel and they um they thought they had stalkers the whole thing was like completely (laughs) blew up but um but i would do that and um yeah i would I, i would just create some some elements that 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 pulled people away from this really um, standardized hotel experience that is true in almost every hotel in the world at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so. the interactivity. Yeah, the interactivity. Yeah. it was there. It was so it was so. Um, it, it was like it was like a tadpole stage. You know, it's hard to even tease out what it was, but um, there was something there that I was trying to figure out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you see that in restaurants, too. Uh, first, you have to have the aptitude to be able to cook. Right. Then you can create an ambiance. Right. The other way around doesn't often work. And I think you were, you know, tinkering with those ideas in, in that stage. Yeah. And for a lot, of, um, a lot of my career, I've been able to tinker with ideas below the radar. Nobody knew I was doing it. Nobody knew what it was. No one knew what... Even even at the point where I understood that what I was creating were art experiences or art objects, um, there was a good seven or eight years between my full and absolute understanding of that and other people's understanding of that. So I was operating kind of like in plain view, in hiding for a very, very long time. So you were down in Miami. Mm Mm-hmm working with your family doing yes. some stuff with the yes. Herald when did um, your family's collection open up to the public because they have a gallery down there right there's a it's, it's called the Rubel family collection it's it's a kind of public museum space and uh, of contemporary art that opened in 1996 
So it opened very shortly after I arrived in Miami. Yeah. Mm. So people, I mean, Art Basel hadn't started yet? or No. No. Um, Art Basel, the first year was 2001. So there, there wasn't that influx of both. Because I, I feel like uh, a lot of the art brought a lot of the food to Miami, too. Miami has always had, you know, a wonderful, you know, Caribbean and Cuban right. and, you know, uh, Southeast blend. But... Um, <laughs> What kind of art and what kind of food was down in Miami at that time? Um, well, there were some innovators in food in Miami. So there were, uh, I forget what their name was, like the Mango Gang or something. And it was Norman Van Eken Van yeah. and Alan Susser. And I think there was a third one. And they were blending, you know, they were doing sort of fusion with French technique and Caribbean flavors. And, but in, you know, in these dining, like it was, it was hard to come from New York and go there and not think you'd been in a time machine. Yeah. You know, it's like, it had this very like cheesy 1980s, uh, 70s, I don't even know what period it had like a really translucent super, glass plates right, and exactly. lame and all right. that kind of stuff. It was super, super cheesy. And, um, but talent in the kitchen. And then Jonathan Eisman had Pacific Time. He opened Pacific Time either when I arrived or shortly after I arrived, which was in 93. And that was a, he brought, he had, he had come from China Grill in New York and he brought a really serious kitchen to Miami. Yeah. And he served food in an environment that was just, kind of like very simple with white tablecloths. It was the first restaurant that felt to me in dialogue with some kind of global food conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, speaking of that, so, some of the other restaurants you mentioned had an exclusivity to them. Um, prior to uh, being on air, we were talking about, you know, bringing food and art to the masses rather than, you know, a, kind of an elite crowd. Um, in Miami, were you seeing food or art being served to you know, a demographic that wasn't the majority? Um, yeah, it was, I mean, Miami's a really, like a lot of America, you know, in New York, you walk down the street and really everyone sees everyone. Even if you're seeing someone walk from their door to their limo, you're still seeing them, yeah. you know, whereas in Miami, there was very little crossover between, between, um, between people of different, levels i mean something that happens in new york is food it doesn't just trickle up and down it's just like all over the place you know everyone is influenced by everyone and there's it's like a big food conversation um and with art you know there was not much of an art scene you know there was there there was a museum that showed some contemporary stuff and there was uh you know it was like heavily unattended and art just was not a major part of the conversation in Miami the way you know you go to the Met and you see school kids you see you know there's just kind of a general understanding of art in New York in Miami it was it was simply not in the conversation and Art Basel coming to Miami is really what completely changed that and it's now sort of like every person in Miami has some connection (laughs) to art it's really crazy it's like it's it's as much a part of the cultural dialogue as um, as uh, skiing is in some in some ski resort. You know, it's yeah. so it's it's really key in Miami now. It's funny. Well, we're gonna take a quick break and come back and have a bigger 
conversation about food and art. You've been listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. by the Hearst Ranch. At Hearst Ranch, ranch manager Cliff Garrison describes their philosophy. Raising cattle on grass is both an ancient practice and one that is standard in much of the modern world. Sometimes the old ways are the right ways. We believe that our methodology is the right one for us. For more information on their premium grass-fed beef, visit hearstranch.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Jennifer Rubel, a food artist extraordinaire. Uh, We were kind of talking about food and art and all its convergences uh, and intersections throughout your life and throughout uh, the cities that you lived in. You're in Miami, mid to late 90s. Um, That's where some of your bigger projects started. Yeah, I, I, I kind of accidentally started to do this um, this work. It really started with Art Basel coming to Miami in 2001. And I started to do these kind of large-scale projects um, that I didn't really know what they were. And I would not have characterized them as art or not art. I certainly... I was never a caterer. I was. I. I didn't. I, they were really. It was a context that allowed me to have really almost no self-definition, and no one knew I was doing the projects. And I just started doing these projects that involved, you know, like quickly. My vocabulary was very clear. I always dealt with scale. I always dealt with vernac- ver- vernacular um, food. Like I was never interested in gastronomy as a part of my work. Yeah. You know that that was never. I, I always and then. You know, I have this kind of economy or laziness of approach where I I almost always do what makes the most sense for a project. And that and, and being able to do that over over in Miami with no one knowing I was doing it and <laughs> nobody paying attention. I mean, people paying attention, but it, in a very anonymous way that um, it's really inside of that that I developed my um, vocabulary and my process and yeah. my approach. What, what was your first public uh, event of sorts? Um, Ready Made was uh, kind of an earlier piece. Yeah, that was early. The I think the first thing I did was this grid. It was like these two stainless steel sort of almost slabs with this grid, <laughs> Super Miami, <laughs> this grid of styrofoam cups with café con leche that I it was like instant espresso with cold milk it was like iced cafe con leche and on one and then this grid of empanadas on the other and it was sort of like 
it's funny I look at I look at I don't even have photographs of it but I think back to it now and it's really it, it, there's a flatness to it but there's a real connection between that and what and what I'm doing now it's funny yeah yeah so I mean where would these things be set up were they in public spaces were they in galleries were they yeah the well what ha- I, I did things in various places but um but then my family, being being um, smart about young artists as they were, um, quickly asked me to do something only at the collection during Art Basel. And so I then started doing this yearly breakfast project uh, during Art Basel, which, you know, I've been doing for this year was the 11th or 12th year. And yeah, for me, it's very beautiful because it's a kind of metronome and, and a kind of... Um, it allows me to really see where my work is every year while I spend the rest of the year doing projects all over the world and whatever. I always go back there and I do a project and it's always the project that's the most kind of um, intense to execute. And uh, yeah, it's that, that, that's sort of how the Miami and I moved out of Miami 10 years. By the time I was doing projects there, I wasn't even living there anymore. Yeah. yeah. Need a little distance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if I need the distance from my projects, but I need a distance yeah. from Miami, right? Um, so you you were talking about all these breakfast projects. Yeah. Obviously, there are specific foods related to each project. Right. Um, an early one being backyard ready-made, right. which was a chock full of condiments, right. like uh, you know, mustards, ketchups, and burgers, I believe. And there was, were burgers yeah. and veggie burgers. for. There was like a big sign saying burgers and veggie burgers for the sissies. But there was... Um, <laughs> Yeah, there were. I, I mean, I I wanted to explore condiments as. I mean, I'm very interested in vernacular sculpture. Yeah. So meaning that, you know, the things you see around you that had to be sculpted or designed. You know, a ketchup bottle. Somebody had to design that. That didn't just appear. You know, from God. Yeah. And uh, I'm very interested in the form of those things and our attachment to those forms. So. And in food, there there are millions and millions of examples of objects like that. So, yeah. um, so that was really. I mean, for me, it was really the burgers were an excuse to use the um, to think about the condiments as usable sculptural objects. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were all set up in a row on table, kind of right. iconized. Uh, yeah. They so. were, they they were you know there was very long tables, red check tablecloths, like picnic tablecloths, and the yeah, they were they were they they were set up in this repeating pattern of you know like ketchup, mustard, mayo, <laughs> relish, a hot sauce, ketchup, mustard, mayo, relish, hot sauce, and um, and I like the idea of forcing them to exist in a way that their form had to be considered, and then once their form had to be considered and they were being presented as sculptural objects, the fact that people would take them and squeeze them and make them messy and engage with them and eat what was inside of them was immediately breaking this traditional viewer artwork boundary. Yeah, the do not touch. The do not touch, yeah. which it, it, for some reason has become my life's work to, <laughs> to undo. Yeah. Um, I just love the idea of a burger being a carrier for a condiment rather than, right. you know, a condiment being an accessory to an accoutrement to a burger. Yes. Um, it's also kind of lessening the form of the burger. That That's mundane and rote and... Almost tired. Right. But I mean, what's interesting, though, is a burger is the kind of handmade portion of 
the burger meal. Yeah. Whereas um, the condiments are this, you know, machine made prefab um, object. You know, every burger is, I mean, unless you're at McDonald's, every burger is different. Yeah. Every homemade burger is different. But um, condiments have this tremendous sameness to them. Yeah. Yeah. So drive through croissants. Right. Well, that was, that was, I think that's when it started to be breakfast and not only, um, and not just like whatever. And I was really interested in, um, well, the project started as an idea of deconstructing the Chris sandwich. <laughs> and so there, um, there were, there were 2000 croissants, there were, uh, 2000 slices of bacon and 2000 hard boiled eggs. And then to eat the eggs people were given these um latex gloves and so that so that that project was beginning to explore the um the the feeling of preciousness inside of an object that you behold and you know 2000 hard-boiled eggs in a pile becomes this extremely aesthetic object you can't see it as not an aesthetic object and so um, the latex gloves were like a stand-in for the white um, cotton gloves that art movers and art handlers use. And so it was um, this exploration of, the, of these gloves used for preciousness connected to these gloves used for, quote-unquote, sanitary purposes. <laughs> and, um, and yet the gloves also acting as an invitation for people to engage with the work and undo the work and and transgress the boundary again between the viewer and uh, the artwork. They were that the, it's at that point that I started thinking of certain objects as prompts, um, prompts to interaction. And food could be a prompt. Uh, a latex glove could be a prompt. Yeah. Um, later on, a situation could be a prompt. Well, I'm going to skip ahead to mm-hmm. creation, just because yeah. it is such a large scale work. Um, it was it was in what gallery? Well, it was part of Performa, yeah, um, and it was located at the former D. I don't know what the name of that space is, but it's <laughs> the former Dia space in Chelsea that was the also the X Initiative at a certain point. Um, but it was a project under the the the, the banner of Performa. And that was a massive, massive breakthrough project for me because um, it was, uh, first of all, there were seven, eight, nine, I don't know, nine, 10, 11 components to it. And um, it was loosely based around the story of creation in the Bible. And the, it was on three three giant floors and each floor you know, the first floor vaguely explored um, the Garden of Eden before the fall. So there was was one ton of peanuts standing in for kind of the dirt of Eden. And there was one ton of ice cubes on a pedestal. Um, And there were, uh, there were, you know, 3,600, you know, precious glasses on a pedestal. And the, in that project, a lot of the language of my heavily interactive work or my performative work uh, became completely solidified. So the, the scale of it and the, um, the use of the pedestal as an art object in itself that people um, that was almost like a foil for people's engagement um, became solidified. Inside yeah. But uh, again, you had those prompts. I mean, you yes. had 
30 ice scoops around the gallery. Yes. Around those ice, so people knew to interact with the ice. Yes. And without those, they might not have. Um, the glasses were tossed off a balcony? They were champagne? Flutes, no, the, t- the glasses tossed off the balcony was at the Saatchi oh, okay. Gallery in yeah. London. Yeah, they yeah. all <laughs> meld together for me, too. But um, it's so interesting. I was having a conversation the other day with a curator at MoMA who was at that... Um, <laughs> at that creation uh, uh, piece. And all of my work, you know, the way people remember it is sometimes completely disconnected from reality. <laughs> and I love that when people say that they saw they saw something of mine, I always ask them what they saw because uh, the, the memory of it can be so dislocated from the reality, yeah. which... Of course, is that's incredibly beautiful. You yeah, know, that's, that's a beautiful experience. But well, they might just be remembering, you know, uh, food elements or visual elements because also at creation there were the barbecue ribs with honey dripping on them. Yes, um, there was felled trees with apples right. you know, on them. Um, so I mean, there is such epic iconography yes. for each one. Yes, that uh, I don't. I'm not saying that there is disconnection, but sometimes people, you know, separate those things and. You know, being that they're on different levels and floors and create their own meal in a sense or create their own experience. Yeah, except this curator thought that there was like one one ton ice block that people were destroying with hammers. <laughs> like it was a complete, well, there, there, were, there had been hammers on another floor. But it's very interesting. Uh, it, you know, it is, I do enjoy dealing in very um, kind of big story iconography. And, you know, you have a, a live, 21 year old apple tree that's been felled with the apples lying around on the ground that you can wash and eat and it's connecting to some of the major stories of our human um, history and mythology and so yeah people's association with that is extremely open yeah Mm -hmm. uh was creation also the one with the powdered sugar and the cookies buried exactly yeah Yeah. so there's this these these kind of construction sacks that are about you know four foot square and uh, filled with powdered sugar, and inside were these cookies, and there were these yellow, kind of toxic um, waste-looking <laughs> gloves hanging on the wall, and people put on the yellow gloves and they dug into it. And that the, the floor that those were on, there were three, there were three pieces on that floor, and the one piece was the felled apple trees, the other one was the powdered sugar, which to me was a stand-in for like coke and debauchery <laughs> whatever <laughs> and then the last one were these jeff coons chocolate rabbits that people could destroy with hammers so it was all about the fall of eden destruction of art you know debauchery drugs just like people started throwing apples at each other <laughs> yeah um i'm gonna kind of speed up through a couple mm-hmm. of, because they are such colossal yeah. projects that each one almost needs its own show courage was the hammering the walls right. into uh, into a dining room yeah um the the de pure diptych the de pure diptych was was um a piece i did at the satri gallery in london um that was commissioned by simon de pure and uh his wife michaela on the occasion of their marriage and um yeah it was that was it was intensely intensely decadent but um there were you know it started off with the with the two of them getting dressed separately in these very small galleries with with a window in front of them that people could look into as they were, you know, Simon was shaving and Michaela was, um, had curlers in her hair and whatnot. And then at a certain point, Simon broke out of his, um, broke out of his, you know, glassed in gallery and broke into Michaela's and, um, carried her out. And, uh, they then took these champagne glasses and 
threw them over into this other gap. It's almost impossible to explain. Yeah. But they, they, <laughs> anyway, what followed was that there were about, I don't know, 800 or a thousand people there. And they all broke these thousands and thousands of champagne glasses into this room. And it was, you know, for me, it connected to everything from like traditional Jewish wet. Mind you, they're not Jewish, but yeah. traditional Jewish wedding breaking of the glass um, to symbolize this, um, the, you know, the preciousness of the marriage bond or 15 other things people think it symbolizes. Um, everything from that to the true decadence of that moment, those people, that space to connecting to one of Saatchi's most iconic collected works, which is Damien Hirst's, you know, shark in formaldehyde. And just hearing the sound of breaking glass in that gallery made you feel like, oh, fuck, what's happening? (laughs) The shark. Um, So, yeah, I I, I really I love doing work where it's um, the the where every element has this kind of heaviness to it that it's loaded and yet it's not it's not specific it's not a story i can tell in words otherwise i would just be a writer you yeah know? so calorically loaded uh <laughs> 1521 donuts on the wall also uh, uh, yeah that was a piece called old-fashioned that was at the la county museum um yeah that's it, it, that's really one of my favorite pieces that i've ever d- done it's called old-fashioned it's a wall that's 60 feet long by I think about nine feet high and it's a very simple grid of 1,521 donuts um, old-fashioned donuts and um, that people are welcome to take and eat and do whatever with you know some people started to take two bites out of it and hang it back on the wall (laughs) to make their own kind of you know food art whatever that is and um yeah, I was really exploring the very notion of the old fashioned, you know, of is a white wall inside a museum that has something hanging on it that you can't touch. Is that old fashioned? Is um, people's engagement with art in a really visceral way old fashioned? And has that always existed? And um, and then using, again, this very vernacular food object, the old fashioned donut that is produced almost like widgets or screws or nails or whatever it's something that you can get in any city in america or wherever and um using that as an art object to be explored and in a form in that grid that um changes over time and it's funny over time it started looking like a digital map of some kind because it became quite binary either there's a donut or there's not a donut it already looks like a zero tooth right right exactly (laughs) yeah um Quickly, I just wanted to touch before we have to fade away. I'm going to have to have you on again because there's so much information. Um, the opening of Italy, uh, you worked with Mary Batali as his vegetable butcher. Right. That's a whole other interaction because now you as the artist are in front of the you know, audience. Right. Well, I, uh, that was not an artwork. Yeah. That was, a, that was me being drunk with Mario one night. <laughs> And coming up and Mario saying, I really want people to get more into vegetables at Italy. And like, you know, I know everybody's going to be into, you know, pizza, pasta, fish, all that. And we came up with this idea of the vegetable butcher. And then, you know, I promptly forgot about it. Mario never forgets anything, (laughs) even though, you know, obviously he enjoys everything. And he, uh, you know, called me up two days later and said, I want you to be the first vegetable butcher. And I said yes before I turned my brain on. And um, so I was a vegetable butcher there for the first month. I hired all the vegetable butchers. 
And it was interesting for me because it really showed me the difference between doing something that's kind of a fun food project and making art that uses food as a medium. Yeah. Yeah. And that was that was the former. You know, that was something that it was really fun to do. It was interesting interacting with people. It was interesting talking to them about vegetables. But there was, um, for me, there was there wasn't really content in that it was a fun thing but it wasn't it didn't have visual content and it didn't it was sort of um purely purely um commercial you know and i don't regret it i loved it but i was there from like eight in the morning till 10 (laughs) at night i learned more about people and eating of vegetables than everyone to learn a lifetime and Still to this day, if Mario asked me to do anything in the world, I'd say yes. Yeah. You know? Well, hopefully that informed you to bring something big and large scale and epic to New York in the near future. I know you have something up your sleeve. or Yeah, I've got a little New York something up my sleeve. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll do a project in New York when I feel like I can do a project here that um, that New Yorkers deserve. You know, it's I, I, I think it's still one of the greatest, most developed cities in the world for food and for art. And um, I'd only want to do something here that was worthy of, of, of that place. Well, we'll be waiting um, <laughs> and we'll be hungry. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for being Thanks. on the show. Okay. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.